let's get on to the epistle of first john as you guys know uh the apostle john wrote five books of the new testament he wrote the gospel of john he wrote first second and third john and he wrote the book of revelation uh, his books, the Gospel of John was written up at the beginning, uh, very shortly after Jesus uh, was crucified and rose from the dead and all of that, along with the other Gospels. They had a very early date. But the, these epistles happened around 96 AD. So these are some like 60 years later, right? You know, this, is, this is a long time after. This, these are some of the last epistles written in the Bible. The, the last one is the book of Revelation, believed to be right around 100 AD. Okay, but so these things have all happened. The, the, the temple has been destroyed. Rome is now has conquered everything. Uh, something that's going on in this time that John absolutely very clearly addresses uh, within uh, his three epistles. And we're actually going to be taking uh, first, second and third John as a whole. We're, we're going to just go one from the other before we switch back to the Old Testament. They're just they're, they're short books They're They all just build upon each other and so we're, we're just going to take them all together collectively but something that was really going on uh in this time was somebody called the gnostics and if you guys don't have you know, i've mentioned them briefly before uh the gnostics were basically this cultish group that preyed on christians right they, they claim to be part of christianity it's kind of like the mormons i don't know if you guys know it but do you know where most of the mormon converts come from weak christians christians who have been disillusioned Christians who have been disappointed, Christians who just don't really know their word, and they're looking for more of a social club and things like that. It's like, wow, Mormons are very moral. Yes, they are. Wow, Mormons are very family-oriented. Yes, they are. Mormons are good people, probably better than a lot of Christians I know. But that doesn't mean that they're right, and it doesn't mean they're getting into heaven, because those aren't the qualifications to get into heaven. Okay? In the same way, the Gnostics were this group of people. They were a cult that preyed upon Christians. They went from Christian to Christian. They even took the scriptures, our scriptures, and they, they, they kind of doctored them up a bit. They made them uh, fit into their doctrine. And you know, they went and they tried to you know, woo Christians into their circles. Okay, the Gnostics, one of the main things, we don't need to get into because their religion is super confusing, as most cults are. Uh, it's very difficult to follow, but uh, the main gist of it is that they, they believe that there was this absolute dual duality between your spirit and your flesh, right? So your spirit could be singing praise to God and just holy and righteous and amen and ah, like that, while your flesh is completely like engaged in sexual immorality. You could be just like you can just be a complete pervert, and that doesn't affect your spirit whatsoever. They, they believed it was completely separate because the flesh was completely corrupt and the spirit was completely holy. And those two things, they were completely separate from each other. So and just think about how this would woo carnal Christians, wouldn't it? Wait a second. You mean I can be holy before a righteous God and yet still indulge all of my flesh? Wow, that sounds really good. Sign me up. And, and that's what they were preaching. That's what they were proclaiming. And. Paul, or not Paul, I'm sorry, John is going to be addressing that uh, not too unsubtly. You know, he, he very pointedly addresses it, and he, he really digs into it quite a bit. And today, you know, do we have Gnostics today? Not really. Most, most of what you hear nowadays is agnostic. See, what, what Gnosticism means, what Gnostic actually means, it means knowledge, to know. Okay, They believe that they had special knowledge, or, or they claim to have special knowledge. So when... Somebody like a, 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 ch a church father would come and start challenging them on the things that they know and trap them in their arguments and show that what they did was wrong. All of a sudden, they just say, special knowledge. 
Special knowledge, you, you just don't understand. You, you haven't, you're not enlightened enough to understand. God gave me special knowledge. And that's how they would win their arguments. Okay? But the problem with Gnosticism, as well as you know, other doctrines that we do have today, and I, I will take a little bit of time to just touch on them again, um, but what it does, it actually changes the character of God, doesn't it? The Gnostics actually believe that Jesus did not come in the flesh, that he was not incarnate. They believe that he was a phantom. That he was literally, Christ was like, there, there was a man, but then there was also the Christ, and he was a spirit, and he was separate. Some of them believe that when Christ walked, he didn't actually leave footprints or anything like that. Um, that's how he could walk across the sea and, and all of those kind of things. They, they had a lot of very strange beliefs. They believed that the man, Jesus, died, but Christ himself did not die because he could not become sin. And you know, the spirit is completely separated from the flesh. And so they, they just had a lot of weird beliefs. And so you're going to see John, he's going to really address this. He, he's going to like dig into this like, you know, no, 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 we touched him. We saw him. You know, we know him. He's really going to like strike these points. And before we get really digging into this, I want to just take a moment, and I don't want to sound like I'm just you know banging a drum to bash this doctrine, but it's really important because it's really on an upswing right now. And you know, until just recently, I kind of tolerated it. It's just kind of oh well, you know, they're wrong, but you know, oh well. But you know, at the pastor's conference, there was actually some guys who. They were really excited because a, a couple pastors, a couple high-profile pastors, talked about how they have not entirely, not embra- embraced the doctrine, but the people of, um, of uh, Acts 29, uh, Mark Driscoll and all that, the, um, basically they're Calvinists and all that. And in one sense I can say, yeah, for sure, you know, just because somebody's a Calvinist doesn't mean that they're not a Christian or anything like that, but... A bunch of these pastors, and they were primarily young pastors, they, they got really excited because they're like, freedom! Like, that's what they declared. Like, yes, finally, we can embrace this. And it's like, and the question was asked by another pastor. He's like, freedom from what? And the guy's like, well, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that. Yeah, and the reality is like, well, Mark Driscoll drinks beer regularly and things like that. You know, they some people think he's one of the guys that came up with the what would Jesus brew kind of a thing uh, that, you know, one of his quotes and I'm not making up anything. It's just one of his quotes. He said that, you know, he, he has repented from the sin of not drinking and things like that. So like, so it's like, is that the freedom you're talking about? And that really has nothing to do with Calvinism. But, you know, people like they, they I don't know. I'm not sure why, but they, people associated with somehow Calvinism with being cool and somehow freedom from some kind of bondage, which unfortunately is kind of imaginary because, you know, in Christ we're totally free. You know, we have freedom in Christ. And yet this thing of, of Calvinism has come up. And in a sense, it kind of reminds me of the Gnostics in a sense because the, the Gnostics, they, they took something that was and something that was clear and then they they kind of tweak it a bit where it doesn't quite add up and it literally changes the character of God. And that's the part just recently that I really thinking it through and just like I took the time to actually sit there and think through the whole uh, Calvinistic philosophy and the doctrine. And as I, as I did it and I took it to its end in both directions, like, you know what? This is a heretical doctrine. It's not just, oh, I disagree, but it is a heretical doctrine because it literally changes the character of God. 
And it's like, that sounds like harsh words for sure. And I'm not saying, I would say people like Francis Chan and things like that, they probably don't understand Calvinism. You think, wait, 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 Brian, there's a lot of guys that I know that are Calvinists that are way smarter than you, and I would agree. That doesn't mean they can't be wrong. And I believe in this case, they are wrong. Because, let me just give you just a quick exhortation on this. Okay, the Calvinists believe that people are either inherently good, those are the elect, or inherently evil. Right? Those are the people that are not chosen. Christ did not die for them. Okay? And the people who are inherently good, they cannot resist God's grace, and they will do what is right in the end. They can't help it, and they go to heaven whether they like it or not. Okay? And then the bad people, they are inherently evil, and so whether they want to, even if they choose like, oh, Lord, please help me, please help me, please help me. No, you're chosen for hell. Sorry. That's it. Okay, so, so people are trapped within those two categories. There's a selective atonement. Christ only died for those who, whom he chose, the elect. And even if they turn their back on God, they live like hell all their whole lives, and they just like curse in God's face, try to trample over the body of Christ as if it was an unpure thing. All of that kind of stuff doesn't matter. They're going to heaven because God chose them to. Okay, that's one aspect of Calvinism. Okay. Beyond that, and the big thing, when you think of Calvinism, you think about one main thing. It's the sovereignty of God. Okay, the sovereignty of God. It's, it's this thing that kind of hangs over everything. It's, every, it's the thing that makes everything in Calvinism make sense. Okay, they say that you know, God is the author of everything. People don't have free will. They don't really have choice. And here it is. Here, here's the whole thing because God decrees all of these things to happen. He decrees the sinner. He decrees the saint. It, it's all by his decree. Nobody can do anything apart from his decree. Okay, there's a problem with that because if, if you look at the, the, the tenets of Calvinism, you say, okay, if somebody is completely good, they cannot do evil, right? And that way, you, you look at somebody like Lucifer, for instance, son of light, right? Son of the morning, Lucifer. You look at Lucifer, he was created good, wasn't he? Okay, well, then how did he fall? Because if, you're, if you are trapped, if you were created good and you cannot do anything but good, how do you fall and how do you become evil? How do you become Satan, the devil, the dragon, the serpent of old? Only by the decree of God. Right? Because there is no free will. So God literally becomes the author of evil. Adam and Eve, they were created good. And not only that, very good. Okay? They cannot choose evil. They cannot do evil except by a decree of God. So God decreed sin. God is the author of sin. If you really take Calvinism, and, and you guys can challenge my logic if you like, you know, come and talk to me. I'd love, I'd love to be wrong, but you know, really, in the end, if you if you take it to its nth degree, you take it to what Calvinism, Calvinism truly states by its principles, then literally, God is now the author of evil. God is now the author of sin, and if He is the author of sin, the author of evil, then He is as evil as He is good, make, making in the way that we consider holiness and righteousness. God is not good at all, is He? If you take somebody who is a murderer and yet they're really nice to the people they like, are they a good person? No. You'd call them an evil person, a, a maniacal evil tyrant, a murderer, somebody who should be on death row. And so you say, Brian, what does that have to do with the Gnostics? Well, you know what? We're going to get into this. We're going to get into this because w one of the things about Calvinism is that, think about it, if you are the elect and you have irresistible grace, you're going to get into heaven no matter what, that means you have the excuse, don't you? You can live however you want. 
You can indulge your flesh. You can do anything you want, and you will not miss out on heaven. You're going to go to heaven no matter what. And to just to finish it off is if you're not going to heaven, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter what you do. You will never enter heaven. So you might as well live like hell too. So either way, whether you be good or whether you be bad, you have an excuse if you choose to do it to live however you want. However carnally you want, you can just go for it. You can see why a lot of people like Calvinism. Now, not all Calvinists, believe, not all Calvinists would do that. They wouldn't you know, fall on those liberties. But the, re- the reality of the doctrine itself, if you just fall, follow its precepts, that makes total sense. Okay? Within the Gnostics, you have that same concept. Within the Gnostics that John is going to be addressing, they basically they made a way. They made a loophole where it's like, hey, man, it doesn't matter. Your, your spirit and your flesh are separate. Indulge, enjoy, have a good time. You still get to go to heaven. It's all good. Do you see it? Do you see it? There is kind of a parallel. It, it, it just, as I was reading over this, it's like I, I couldn't get out of my head. It's like, you know what? I'm going to have to address it. Sorry. Here we go. And it's because Calvinism has is, is been repackaged now. It, it's an old doctrine, but it's been repackaged, and now it's associated with the cool guys. Right? It's associated with, ooh, they're cool. Everybody likes to quote a Calvinist. Ooh. Yeah, but really in the end, is that the God you want to, to worship? The capricious God who just at whim doesn't matter. This guy could like, you know, live his whole life desiring to follow after God, desiring to love him and serve him, just wants to be with him. And God's like, nah, I didn't chose you. Sorry. And yet that's, that's what Calvinism means. I'm sorry, but it changes the character of my God. And to me, that's intolerable. I, I just, I can't, I can't embrace it. I can't tolerate it anymore. So that's pretty harsh. I, I might get letters. Ah, not that many people listen to this anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> I can get away with it. It's great. So, you know, eh, I'll, I'll just say what I'm going to say. You guys can agree with me. You can disagree with me. You can challenge me. I would love to hear your comments. But um, let's go ahead and dive into First John. There's only 10 verses. See, that's why I could do the long intro. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and dive on in. First John, verse 1, chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Father, we thank you so much for this, your word. Lord, we pray that you would give application to our souls. Lord, wash us with the water of your word. Teach us, Lord, teach me. Open my heart, Lord, to you. Lord, I pray that you would take these things, Lord, and that 
your word would find good soil within my heart. And Lord, that it would bear a crop of a hundredfold. Lord, we love you so much. Guide us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. John talks differently, doesn't he? John just has a different vernacular. He has just a different way of saying things than the other apostles. Like if you look at like the synoptic gospels and then you look at the gospel of John, he's on a totally different page. That's why it's separate from the the synoptic gospels, right? They all basically flow, you know, follow the same flow and order and things like that. And John's just like, woo, getting kind of mystical on you, right? He'd be like the hippie of the group, right? And then you come to, like, you know, you read through the epistles, you read through Paul, and Paul's like a logician, and he's like, dun 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 and all this. And then all of a sudden you get to John, and he's talking about, like, light and dark and, and all of these kind of things. You're just kind of like, huh? And it can almost throw you for a second because it's such a different flavor. But it's kind of cool because it's a different frequency. And sometimes we need a different frequency to catch us off guard, to kind of like, huh? Huh? Because we can kind of start, you know, sleep, asleep at the wheel. And then all of a sudden, like, a loud music comes on and it, like, stuns you and you wake up and you go, oh, oh, my goodness, I was like, I, was, I just drifted off there. And in the same way, you know, John, he's so different. You know, he comes in such a different um, frequency that's all of a sudden just kind of like, it just kind of strikes you. It's like, man, I, I really got to, like, think about what you're saying, John. Because, you know, I got so used to Paul and all of his epistles. You know, I started following the, the, the logician and the theologian. Now it's like I have to learn to follow the mystic, too. And so... Here he begins and he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. How is that to start a letter? <laughs> right? Not like, hey, guys, this is John. Good to hear from you. You hope you're doing well. Nothing like that. He just like jumps right in. You're like, huh? What are you saying? Well, l- let's look at it. L- let's bring it into context. He says, that which was from the beginning. Well, in the beginning, Reshith Elohim, you know, Genesis 1.1. Who was that? In the beginning, God. Right? In the beginning, God. Th- there's your context. That's who he's speaking about. He says, in the beginning. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now, I, I, don't, know if, I don't want you guys to miss this, but what is he saying right there? That which, we ha- that which was from the beginning, God, right? So there's the context, God. He says, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon. What's he saying? It's pretty easy, right? We, his apostles, we, his disciples, have looked upon the face of God. We, his disciples, we, his apostles, have heard the voice of God. That's what he's saying. Don't miss it. That, that right from the very beginning, if people ever challenge you, oh, Jesus, you know, he, the, the Bible doesn't say that he's God, right? You, you go to your Jehovah's Witness friends, right? And it's like right here, that which was from the beginning. Well, we know. What is that from the beginning? Well, God. In the beginning, God. Rashith Elohim. You go to, his, to John's gospel. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And it was not, was a God, right? That is a very poor Greek translation. It's not a Greek translation at all. Okay, just doesn't work that way. Okay, but it's very clear from the context. Anybody who has any understanding of the Bible whatsoever knows in the beginning, God, right? In the beginning, God, John was a Jew. This is something to be very clear to a Jewish population. This would be something to be very clear to a church that has has now become grafted into the olive tree. 
right? They, they, they've learned, they, they, they've understood, uh, even though they're Gentiles, they, they still have dealings with their Jewish brothers, right? They, they all, they, they would know these things. They would learn and grow in these things. And he says, that which was from the beginning, God, which we have heard, and that's hearing with your ear, literal, like literal hearing, like an audible voice, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and that's just like a, a specific, just straight like, oh, look, I can see David, right? That, that's what it's talking about right there. And it says, with our eyes, which we have looked upon. Now, that word looked upon, the English word doesn't quite give it the, what is actually being said here. It's true. It's a right translation. But you need to know a little bit more about the context of this word to understand what's being said. Because he already said that we have seen with our eyes, right? So why would he say the same thing twice? Right? That would be repetitive and redundant. Thank you. What he's saying here, this word that, that is translated in, in our Bibles, looked upon, it means to consider. It means to really look at, to really like, hmm, to meditate upon, to ponder, to very, like, not the piercing stare of a mad person, but like really like look deep within. Okay, that's what he's talking about. He says, so we, we have heard we, we have seen. We, we have looked upon. That means we have considered these things. We look closely. We walk with them. And you think about John. I mean, John, for heaven's sake, he actually like leaned on the bosom of Christ, right? He's like, he's like at, at the Last Supper, he's like chilling out. And he's like, hey, bro, what's up? You know? I mean, it's like, like he was really close to Jesus. They spent three and a half years with him, right? They followed him everywhere he went. And to be called a disciple in the Old Testament... It, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to us. It'd be the closest thing that we'd have is a student to a teacher, right? But a student to a teacher, most of the time we don't respect our teachers, right? We're just like, I remember it when I was in elementary school, I made like a really huge spit wad, like a big one. It was like a, it was like a snowball spit wad, right? And, and the teacher was up there writing some stuff and I go, whoom, and just slapped it right on the blackboard. Like, and it's like, and everybody's cracking up and I was cracking up too. And he's just like, who did that? And nobody answered because nobody saw me do it because I was towards the back and I just hucked it. And like, it, anyway, we don't always respect our teachers is the point I'm trying to make. Okay. Thank, thank, thankfully, you guys are very respectful. I really appreciate that. And, you know, if you weren't so respectful, I would have deserved it. Thank you. <laughs> but, but we're not always respectful to our teacher. But see, you can't get to be a disciple in Jesus' day that way. See, a disciple is somebody who comes underneath the teaching of their rabbi, the, the, their rabboni, and, and they literally, they, they spend their life with them. They eat what they eat. They drink what they drink. They think what they think. They literally become a little mini version of their teacher. That's what it means to become a disciple. It is to completely in every way emulate the one whom you are studying under, Right? The apostles, when they spent that three and a half years with Christ, when they were declared disciples, when they left everything and followed after Jesus Christ, they would sit there and they would scrutinize every word. They would try to, and, and that's why they were so, they're always so confused because Jesus was talking in parables and they're just like, they're trying to like take it literally and they want to like associate it into their heads and they want to be it, and they, and, but they don't get it. You know, it wasn't until after the resurrection, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, all of a sudden it's like, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, I get it now. But they were really confused. It would have been a hard discipleship to, to be under, but that's what it means. But now, see, John is speaking now in his state of being regenerated. The Holy Spirit was breathed upon him. It came upon him at the day of Pentecost, 
right? The Holy Spirit is working within him now, and now he does understand. Now he does know. Now he can look back in hindsight and say, that's what he meant. That's what he meant. And so Jesus, he who is from the beginning, who is manifested to the apostle John, and it's not a phantom, right? Notice he's saying we have seen it, we have heard it, and we're going to get to the, we have also handled it. He says, but we've looked upon, we've considered it. We heard his teachings. We know his teachings, right? Because remember, he's going to be refuting the Gnostics and the Gnostics, they have twisted the teachings of Christ. They've twisted the gospel. And he's saying, no, 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 no. We have heard, we have seen. Those Gnostics, they weren't there. They weren't, trust me, I know who the disciples were. He says, and they were not there. He says, but we have heard. He says, I want you to understand that I have a position of authority as one of Christ's apostles, that I have seen. I was an eyewitness to the things which happened, which he spoke. He says, so listen up, listen up. And then not only that, but he says, uh, and our hands have handled Right. How many people on earth could actually say that? Our hands have handled God. Right? They touched him. You know, they, they knew him that closely. You know, they sat there, they would walk with their arm over his shoulder, or his arm over their shoulder. They would shake hands, they would kiss the cheeks, that's what they do in you know in, in Asian cultures and things like that. It seems kinda of weird to us, but that's what they did. They, they were on, on, on this such close and intimate level with Christ. He says, you know, our hands have handled him. Can you imagine, like, like looking at your hands, like if your hands had touched the face of God? I mean, it's just like people in our culture, it's like you know, they touch a rock star, like he sweats on him. They're like, ah, I'm never washing my hand again. You know, it's like, get over it, sweat, come on. You're weird. But... I mean, think about this. You know, these are people who literally touched God. They touched God. That's an incredible thing, isn't it? That is an incredible thing. And see, we, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, enter into that lineage as well. And I'm not talking apostolic succession and things like that. No, no, no. We have been given the right to approach God and his mercy seat without fear without trembling, because we stand upon the rock of his grace, paid for by the blood of his son. We can approach him as a child approaches his or her father. We can love him. We can say, Daddy, in that very intimate and close and personal way. We don't have to approach God like standing afar off, because the Jews in Christ's day, man, if they didn't know anything, it's God was holy. They didn't even say his name. If you talk to Jews today, Orthodox Jews, they won't say God. They'll say the name. Right? They won't say Christ or Christian. They'll say Exton. Or, or they'll just like, they'll say something else. Followers of the way. They'll say all sorts of different things. But they won't say, if you don't believe me, go on to the Jerusalem Post on their website. Go on to their, their little chat rooms and things like that. And you'll see Exton. And you're like, Exton? What's Exton? And then you start realizing by the negative connotation of the way they're using that word. They're talking about Christians. Okay? But they won't say Christ. They'll say Exton. And so, guys, see, we have been given this right, this privilege, like John. Like these men of long ago. Like, remember Mary, you know, when she fell and, she, and when Jesus said, Mary, and she figured out, Rabboni, and she hugged him, and he's like, don't cling to me, I haven't ascended yet. But, like, can you imagine touching Christ? 
I mean, what would that be like? I don't know, but I can't wait. I can't wait because we will touch the face of God. We will approach. The Jews, man, they had all of these walls. They had a priesthood in between them. But there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. He is God, and he, he did become a man, and he is the only one that stands between us and the Father. And we can approach freely through the veil, which was his body. Isn't that amazing? It's beautiful. He says, so our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Now listen to this, verse 2. Isn't that a lot in one verse? Man, I'm telling you, John says a lot. He says, the life was manifested. Now, I want you to notice that the life. Right? He's not just talking about God, because it is God. But he's also saying, he's declaring him to be the life. He says, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you, right? So he's saying, he's talking about the life. And, and, and you don't have to look very far. You can, you can go to the Gospels and see. Remember when, um, when Lazarus was in the tomb and Mary and Martha, they're all weeping. Oh, teacher, if only you would have been here, then you know, my brother wouldn't have died. Oh, like that. And he's like, you know, Jesus is kind of testing him out. It's like, well, do you, do you believe it, that, I, that I could raise him? She's, oh, and Martha gave like the good answer. Oh, I know in the last days that, you know, you, you'll, in the resurrection, he'll rise and things like that. And he's like, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the life. God is the source of life. Guys, what makes us alive? What makes us living beings? Is it not God? Right? He is the source. We're not just like some solar powered, you know, battery that just keeps going and going and going. It's by his word. It's by his power. It's by his breath that he breathed into us that we live and have our being. And that life is, came from eternity and entered into this reality. That life, the life, the source of life was manifested on this earth as a baby in a manger. And he grew and dwelt among us. And the apostle John is saying, and we're declaring that to you now. That life, God, and and who is life but God? He is the source of life. And death, what is death? Think about what, what... the Revelation talks about the second death, right? What is the second death? It's not the death of the flesh, because that's not the source of life either. What What is the second death? It's the separation from God. It's being, like, see right now, people, even people who don't believe, who haven't committed themselves to God, like, they still have some life because God hasn't completely separated himself from them. Right? He hasn't completely separated himself. Now, there is a, a, a divide, for sure, because of sin, and people in their rebellious hearts, they won't give their hearts to him. They won't submit to him. And they just keep saying, not yet, not yet, not yet, or not ever, not ever, not ever. But in the end, still, even the most blasphemous sinner, God is giving grace to and has given life and is allowing them to continue in that life. But there will come a day, and Michael let me borrow a book, you know, uh, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, right? And I did read it, by the way. And, you know, there is a reality, though, that that will come to an end, right? That comes to an end. And and even the most blasphemous sinner this day has the grace of God and God's life being breathed into him. He is being sustained by the word of God. But there will come a day when God will say, no more. No more. And that life will be removed from them. And it is called the second death. 
It is called the lake of fire, Gehenna, the outer darkness where the worm does not die, where the flame is not extinguished ever, ever. Right? But God is life. Do you want life? Then draw near to God. Right? When people say, get a life, right? we should like take over it and like change the context of that. We should be like, yeah, we as Christians should be telling everybody, get a life because life is in Christ. Right? That is life. You don't know life. And you, you could think, oh, you know, I had a life. I got to go out of these parties. I got to drink a whole bunch of alcohol and then puke my guts out. Oh, wasn't that great? Really? That's what your life is about? That's what you live for? That's what you get up and that's why you work? That's pathetic. That's pathetic. But see, we have life, don't we? We have life. It has been given to us. It has been implanted in us. And as we draw near to Christ, that life, it becomes like a spring within us and it bubbles over and it flows over. And it's like we get to this place where we're like full. You guys know what I'm talking about? It's hard to explain, isn't it? And if you haven't accepted Christ, then you might not understand it. But it's like there's this fullness. Uh, Even when the whole world is going to hell, it's like there's still this, I feel full. I'm not empty. I'm not dry. Because God's Spirit is breathing into me. And though my life, my outward man may be perishing day by day, my inward man is being renewed. That's what we have. That's this life that John is talking about. He says, in that life, in verse 2, it was manifested. And listen, and we have seen, and listen to this, and we bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. See, he's talking about now it's not just like life. It's like eternal life. He says, but see, here's the role of the apostle. Here's the role of the disciple. It's like not only did he see, not only did he look upon, not only did he hear, not only did he handle, not only did he experience the life of God, of he who came from the beginning, but now it is his job to do what? To declare it. Right? It's not enough just to take it in. Take it in. It's like, oh, well, I feel great. Oh, I'm full. I'm wonderful. No, no, no. We must declare this truth. We must be telling this world, dude, get a life. Dude, the party scene, that is so whatever. Like, get, you, want, you want to live? Live in Christ. You want to live? Live for God. Deny yourself for a change. Serve others. Love God. And then you will know what it means to live. Amen. See, John is declaring this truth. He is declaring, he's declaring eternal life to people. Right? He's declaring eternal life to the churches that he is addressing now. He's declaring it. That which he has seen, that which he has heard, that which he has looked upon, considered, and held, he is declaring. That which he has experienced, he's declaring. Really, in the end, that's what my job is, isn't it? is declare that which I have experienced. I have read the word. God has manifested his glory to me. I have given my heart to him, and he in return has filled me and, and has used me in amazing ways. And like I, I'm still dumbfounded because, quite honestly, most of you are smarter than me. As like, yet yeah, he uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Right? He really does. And that, that's just an amazing truth. And he says, that's what he's declaring to you. And verse 3, it says... That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why? Here's the purpose of it. Why? That you also may have fellowship with us. See, that's his desire. 
that's his desire. It's not to like to, to win money and things like that. It's not to get like a really big church congregation, a big following, so you can like, oh, now you know I'm in the money. I can get that new car. Woohoo! Yeah. Like, that's not what it's about at all. What's the only motivation of the Apostle John, the Apostle of Love? Right. His only desire is that he might have fellowship with those who are outside the commonwealth of Christ. His desire is that they might have fellowship, that they might have an intimate relationship, a closeness. That's his desire. I would be a very miserable pastor, a very poor pastor, and I would actually encourage you to leave and go find another pastor if my only desire was to pad my own pocket. If it was to pad my wallet, if it was just about, you know, hey guys, let's fill this church and let's let's bring glory to your pastor. Woohoo! Raw on three, Jameson. Right? No. <laughs> right, that I would be a miserable pastor. I would that would be horrible. But you know, it's like, what's my motivation? Like, if any of you, if I've ever called any of you out, I, I won't point at you. I won't even look at you. But like, if I've ever called any of you out, do I gain anything from calling you out? Do I gain anything or lose anything for letting you stay in your sin? Does it affect me or my family whatsoever? No. Why do you think I do it? Why do you think I share those things with you? Why do you think I I come alongside and say, hey, have you considered this? I try to do it gently, I hope. You can give me a grade later if you like. But why do I do it? Because I desire to have fellowship with you. I desire to walk with you on the streets of gold one day. I desire to present you to my God and say, Lord, here, here is your bride, a chaste virgin, ready for you, Lord. That's my desire. I fall into the lineage of like Paul, and that was his desire. That's really the heart of any pastor, any real pastor, is that you might have fellowship with us. Why? He says, because... He says that you may have fellowship with us. And truly, listen, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, as I draw near to God, I have this fellowship. I have this koinonia. I have this intimate relationship with the Lord. And not just pastors have that. Anybody can have it. That's why Christ died, to remove the priesthood. I don't stand in between you and God. I don't have any more clout with God than you do. No. This is the part of the body of Christ that I fulfill. But you fulfill another part of the body that I can't fulfill. See, I have fellowship with the Father as I draw near to Him. And then I desire, I I declare the things that He has revealed to me that I might have fellowship with you, that you might have fellowship with who? Father. That you might draw near to Him in the same way that He has drawn near to me. That's what... That's what John is getting at here. He's like, I I, want to declare these things to you. I want to declare the truth. I want to declare the life and not just that eternal life to you that you and I might have fellowship. And when you think about fellowship, let's talk about fellowship for a second. What does that mean? Well, let's just say somebody who has a very intimate and close relationship. Who is your absolute bestie? If you're married, you better say your spouse. It's the warning. I'm just going to give you the answer, okay? I'm going to give you the answer. If you're married, it's your spouse, okay? That's the church answer. It's like if you're in Sunday school and they say, they ask a question, you're not sure, what do you always say? Jesus, right? There's the Sunday school answer. Well, this question, I'm just going to give you the answer. 
your best, you better be your spouse, okay? If it's not, then come up and talk, okay? So in the same sense, though, we need to draw near to one another. We need to draw near to our God. We need to have that fellowship because that fellowship, it's like that relationship. It's like the marriage relationship. Uh, Let me just give you a hypothetical. Let's just say that you have a really good friend who's Jewish. Now, can you have a really, really good relationship with somebody who's Jewish? Kind of, to a degree, but there's going to be a, a, a line of division, isn't there, when it comes to Messiah, when it comes to uh, the, the, the dietary laws. Because here's the thing. Let, let me just show you how you could break fellowship really fast with a Jew. You invite them over. Hey, buddy. Hey, pal. Come over to my house for dinner. Oh, okay, thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, bringing the wife and the kids too. Hey, man, that's great. And they show up, and you've got a suckling pig with an apple in its mouth. Right? You want some? What do you think your Jewish friend's going to do? They're going to be really mad at you. They're going to be insulted. They're going to be really angry. And see, there, there's the division. There's a place where you can't have that koinonia, where if you come together, now, now you invite me to, to your house, Right? <laughs> You invite me to your house and you have a suckling pig. I'm like, dude, man, you're so, you shouldn't have. And I'm like, oh, and like, I'll be hugging you. I'm like, oh, you're awesome. You know, wow, thank you. See, there's that fellowship because there's nothing that stands in between the two of us. We have fellowship, right? But it, it would not be so if you did that with a Jewish friend, okay? It would not go over well. And in the same way, see, I, I have a closeness with my father, And my desire by declaring his truth to you, by teaching his word to you, is that you will now have that closeness, that fellowship with me. And that not only that, but you will have that closeness and that fellowship with him. Does that make sense? So let's continue on. He says, and these things we write, why? That your joy may be full. It's not for John's sake. Now, granted... He's already saying, because of my fellowship with the Father, my joy is full. And I would love to share that joy with you. When you guys look at me, do you think that I'm a miserable guy? I hope not. Please be honest if, if you do think that. You know, all, all in all, I'm a pretty happy guy, aren't I? I mean, that's why J- Joey always talks about me, the guy who never has the bad day. You know, the people at Shoreline, they always talk, oh, that guy who smiles. Right. That, that's how that's how I'm known at Shoreline. They don't all remember my name, but like that guy who smiles. Oh, yeah, that's him. Why? Why do I have that joy? Why do I have that peace even when trial comes into my life? Because my joy is in the life that was from the beginning. My joy is in the father and his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God. And I desire to share that joy with you, that your joy might be complete, that you might share, that every single person that looks at Walt says, that's that guy who always smiles. He never has a bad day, right? Oh, Joshua, man, that guy, he's always happy. Whoa, right? That's my desire. My desire is not like, man, Brian, he doesn't even drink coffee. How does he stay so happy, right? It's like, no, no, no. My desire is that you might, like, people might go like, dude, what is up with that church? What are they drinking over there? Like, man, they're so, like, they're loving and and on fire and joyful. Whoa, what is going on? I need some of that. They got Kool-Aid over there? What? (laughs) Sorry. Uh, Anyway, 
But it's like, you know, that's my desire, is that we share that together, that we have that fellowship, that we have that koinonia, and that we have that thing in common, that one thing in common, who is Christ. And he continues. Now, he kind of changes gears here for a second. And the first line, verse 5 of this new paragraph, he says, This is the message which we have heard from him. That's the life from the beginning, God, Christ. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you. Okay, here it is. You guys ready? Buckle your seats. Here it is. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Okay, that is the message of John. God is light. Now, what happens when you turn on the light? Say you're in a dark closet and then also you turn on the light. What happens? What happens to all the darkness? Is some of the darkness over here and some of it's over there? Or is it all flee to the corner and just sitting up there waiting for you to turn off the light again and then it comes back down? Is that what happens to the darkness? Where the light is present, darkness is absent. Where the light is, darkness is not and cannot exist there. Does that make sense? So God is light. And because God is light, see, that's why that whole Calvinistic doctrine it don't work with me. It don't fly with me because God is light. He cannot be the author of evil because where the light is, darkness cannot exist, right? It cannot exist in light. You cannot have light and darkness occupying the same space. It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't work that way. Okay, he says, so God is light. In him is no darkness at all. This is a truth, guys. Gird it around your waist. Right? This is something that you need to understand because in our culture, and I'm sorry, Mark Driscoll, I'm sure you're a really nice guy, and I've heard lots of good things about you too, but still, swearing from the pulpit, cursing and things like that, I'm sorry, God does not honor that. And I might have to delete this off of this message, but I don't care. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. God does not honor that because God is light. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And why am I getting hard on this? Because watch this. Verse 6. If you want to, if you're taking notes, just write hypocrite next to 6. Because, see, verse 5 is about the holiness of God. Verse 6 is about the hypocrite. If we say, see, there's an important word, say. If we say that we have fellowship, what's fellowship? Koinonia. Remember the, remember the you and the Jew? Remember you and the Jewish guy and the suckling pig? Okay, so let's say that you have fellowship with him, God, the one who is light and there is no darkness in. And yet you walk in darkness. Wait a second. You already have a conflict right there, right? God is light and in him is no darkness. Yet if you say that you have fellowship with him and yet you walk in darkness, uh uh-oh, can darkness exist where the light is? Can darkness and light walk hand in hand as though they're best compadres? No. Because, see, if you walk in darkness as you approach God's glory and his light, guess what's going to happen? One or two things are going to happen. Either God's going to flee from you, which I don't think he's in the business of fleeing all that often. Or you are going to be cast away from him. And he'll say, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's a truth. I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't declare the truth. He says, 
This is the hypocrite. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, what does he say? He just calls him right now. You lie. You lie. He says, you lie and you do not practice the truth. See, truth is light, isn't it? John, is at, he uses uh, light and truth interchangeably throughout the go- his gospel and also through his epistles. We're going to see it as we continue on. But he says, if you say... You declare. See, and that's why I said hypocrite. Remember, we looked at the hypocrite? What is it? It's an actor, right? Somebody who's playing the part of somebody else. It's an assumed role. He says, if you declare, if you say that you have fellowship with God, and we know this one truth, this is what Christ, he who was from the beginning, declared to us that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. He says, if you declare that you have fellowship with God, that close, tight, compadre, right? And yet you walk in darkness, you lie and the truth is not in you do not deceive yourself you do not have fellowship with god you are a hypocrite you are an actor you are a liar don't go there don't go there and then in verse seven here i wrote disciple so here's the contrast of verse six but if, see, there's that if there, that's, that's an important if. But if we walk in the light, that means practicing the truth, right? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? If we walk in the light, see, that's action, isn't it? It's not just a declaration of the mouth, but it is a show of what you do. See, James declares it this way. He says, faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and yet you have no works, your life doesn't back up what you say. He says, you're a liar. He says, that, that, that faith doesn't save. He says, that's, that kind of faith doesn't save. The, the, the faith that says, oh, yes, I, you know, I am a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, but I don't do anything. I, I still live like I want to live. I might as well be a Gnostic. Right? Sorry, that doesn't work. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another and his blood will cleanse us from all sin. Glorious truth. Verse 8, it's another hypocrite. Here's a hypocrite verse. If we say that we have no sin... Right? We say we have no sin. Now, if you believe you're the elect under the, the Calvinistic doctrine, you're saying, I have no sin. I am the elect. I, I have this grace and there's, it, you know, hey, it's all good. I'm good. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter. It's all good. I'm going to heaven. Right? He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves. We all have sin. He says the truth is not in us. And see, here's the thing. Here's here's the dangerous spot of saying that we have no sin, that we have no need of the Savior. Now, don't get me wrong. Calvinistic doctrine doesn't say that they don't need the Savior. They, They do say they need a Savior. But if we declare... Like the Gnostics, hey, you know, we have no sin. We can, we can do whatever we want. We can, we can continue on in sin any way, you know, as long as we like. It doesn't matter. God has to accept us. That sounds like our culture today, huh? Church after church, domination after domination is embracing homosexuality, isn't it? It's crazy. And yet if we say we have no sin 
hey, you know what? Basically, it makes the cross of no effect over our, our lives. We don't need the cross because we are not sinners. God has to accept me as is because of his love and because of his grace. Cheap grace. Cheap grace. The truth is not in us. That means you're a liar. Verse 9, the disciple. But if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, it says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, that follows with the last disciple verse, huh? Where it talked about if you walk in the light as he is in the light, then his blood will cleanse you from all sins. And now he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let every man be false. Let God be true and let every man be a liar. Right? If we declare that we have no sin, that we need not a savior, if, we, if, if oh, you know what, I, I can just continue on in my sin, it's all good, everything's great, then it's like, you know what, you're full of darkness. And you make him a liar because he said that it cost his son to die on a cross. That was necessary to save you from your sin, not so you can continue on in it. Paul even declares that, doesn't he? Guys, God is light. God is holy. Guys, we need to be holy. Amen? Guys, we need to be holy. And that's something that's sorely lacking in our culture, holiness. And it's something that gets looked over in the church. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people, especially of the, of the younger generation, you know, mine and below, that seem to think that you can compromise in every single way, that the liberty of Christ means you can just do anything you want. And it kind of scares me about that past. He was like, yes, freedom. Like freedom from what? Freedom from teaching the word of God? Freedom from Christ and holiness? What? Freedom from what? That's scary to me. Because God will not honor unholiness. God will not honor or bless darkness. And I don't know about you, and I, you know, honestly, I, I, I could care less about these doctrines that have that are named after men. Honestly, you know, who's that? They're men. Give me the word of God, and my doctrine better align with the whole word of God, and then it's good. But if I need to, sh- if I need to shake, twist, or ignore any part of Scripture in order to make my doctrine sound then it ain't worth listening to. Guys, we need to be holy. I don't care what anybody tells you. I don't care what pastor stands up and says, oh, you know, homosexuals are great and we love them and God loves them too and they're, they're going to heaven no matter what. I don't care what they say. I don't care if the smartest man in the world got up and told you that. You know what? He's a liar and the truth is not in him and he is full of darkness and he will be rejected by God. Guys, we need to be holy. We need to be holy. That we might have fellowship with one another and that we might have fellowship with him for that is why we were created. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you that, Lord, your word is so challenging to us. Lord, we thank you that you do not just allow us to remain comfortable, Lord, but you make me really uncomfortable sometimes. Because I need it, Lord. Because I can get lulled to sleep in my culture. I can be rocked by the devil himself till I drift off into that little dream world 
thinking everything's fine. But Lord, I, I need your word. I need your truth, Lord. I need to hear that you are light. And in you there is no darkness. And that we are to have fellowship with you. That our joy might be filled. Lord, we just pray that you would be among us now. Lord, we pray that you would convict us, Lord. And every single person in this room, Lord, we all need to hear you. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would speak each one of us in a very personal way. Lord, that you might reveal to us areas of darkness. That we might turn from them, Lord. That we might have that perfect communion and fellowship with you. Lord, we love you with all of our hearts and give all glory to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.